I'd love if somebody ever felt, you know, drawn to talk about wounded healers. What does it mean that we're wounded healers? And at first I was like, ooh. And then immediately after that thought, like half a second later, I was like, ooh, yeah. Uh, and so we dove into that last week. And we spent most of our conversation last week in Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus being a faithful and merciful high priest. That Jesus is going to serve as this high priest throughout the book of Hebrews. They're going to have this conversation about that. But in this part of the conversation, at the beginning of this conversation, Jesus is this faithful and merciful high priest. And because of that, he joins us. He steps into our suffering. He steps into our pain. He joins us. I think Jeffrey's prayer before we greeted one another talked about there's this sense of solidarity. There's this sense of Jesus coming and joining the mess. And he, he doesn't just do that so he can like spiritually pat us on the head and say, I'm with you, or he does that because it's, it's, it's all synced up in what God's doing in his redemptive work. That there's nothing wasted in this broken world, even the brokenness itself. And, and I tried to avoid the conversation last week about, well, does he cause it, or does he orchestrate it, or is it, but God, God will not waste it. That is where I'll plant my flag. He will not waste pain and suffering. And so we got, we, we, we got into that, and we noticed that the writer of Hebrews, by the way, the writer of Hebrews says a couple things. Number one, the writer of Hebrews said that it's in this process that Jesus is brought to glory. There's something about the pain and the suffering that is connected to Jesus' exaltation. That's true in Philippians 2, that he, he, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but he'd emptied, he emptied himself, taking on the very form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and it's because of this that he's been exalted to the right hand of God. And this is why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not because he's the ultimate winner and finally conquers in the end with triumphant fist pumps from all the evangelicals, but because he dies and chooses to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death. That is why he's exalted. It's a backwards, upside down, but there's something connected. And so the writer of Hebrews says, and this isn't just about Jesus' glory. This is what the whole story is about. The whole story is all synced up and doing the same thing. It's not just Jesus, it's also us. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, referencing us. It's not just Jesus that God was exalting. He's putting the whole world back together, and he wants to bring many children to glory. That's you and me, and he's going to do that through the same kind of method. And so Jesus wasn't just joining us in solidarity. He was also showing us the way. He was showing us the way. He was showing us how to suffer well. And he served as this model for this conversation. And in the midst of this, we did talk in part one, kind of right in the middle of the conversation, we did talk about the connection between shame and suffering. Because the writer of Hebrews seems to plant their flag there as well. Because we have this thing we talked about, we reflected on it last week. And I, I, want, I want to jump off there, so it's worth coming back to. We talked about how we have suffering and pain in our life, and sometimes that's at our own hands. Sometimes pain and suffering is simply the consequences of our own dumb decisions. Can I get an amen? amen. Like sometimes, and we get that, we get that, we understand that, and we still, like there's still a conversation, the same conversation. It doesn't change the conversation. It's still the same conversation about how God wastes nothing. He uses it in our redemption. So that doesn't change it, but there's a whole lot of the pain and suffering that we suffer in this world that has nothing to do with my decisions, the consequences of my actions. 
There's a whole lot of pain and suffering in the world that is just the pain and suffering of the world. There's also a whole lot of pain and suffering in my life that I've suffered at the hands of other people's rebellion, evil decisions. There's, there's abuse, metaphorical abuse, literal abuse that we've suffered at the hands of other people. And God wastes none of it. And, the, and we talked about this sense of shame that comes with that, which is interesting, right? It would make sense if we were ashamed of the things that we did wrong and that pain and suffering. It is interesting that the pain that is not our fault at all, the injustice that we suffer in whatever form, also gets attached to shame, doesn't it? And that is, that is logically odd, but unbelievably true, and every single one of us knows it. We somehow, and I believe, I talked last week hopefully effectively, that it's because of this sense of we think that's the part of us that shouldn't be looked at. We think that when God sees that part of us, he goes, ooh, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I designed. That's not. And so even the parts that aren't our fault, we have this sense of like, ah, that's my, those are my ugly parts. And yet the writer of Hebrews says Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and then quoted Psalm 22, the very psalm that Jesus sings over and over again as he hangs on the cross to die. And the part that the writer of Hebrews quotes is the part of the song where Jesus is saying God is not, not ashamed of the afflicted. God does not abhor your suffering and your pain. As Jesus hang, hangs naked on a cross, he says God's not ashamed of me right now. God sees my pain and my suffering, and he looks me full on in the face. I keep thinking of, I've, I've dove in this week to another one of Brene Brown's books. I'm way behind on staying caught up. I love Brene Brown. She's one of just my favorite thinkers. I'm reading uh, Braving the Wilderness right now. But it, it reminded me, as I thought about the sermon last week and this week, it reminded me of, I think it was in Rising Strong, where she talked about that sense of never wanting to make that eye contact with those that struggle with homelessness. There's this thing that we see in those that suffer that makes us not want to look into the suffering. We just kind of want to like avert our gaze or hide our... And there's something connected there with shame. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews or the psalmist says God is not ashamed of our suffering. He, 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 he's not going to like look at it and be like, oh. He's going to look it square in the face and say, I see it. I see all of it and I see you and I see all of you. There is an essay that I've been mulling over for this sermon which I know sounds like a ton of fun. An essay, wow. Not a movie clip? Nope, an essay, sorry. It's by Jerome Miller. Jerome Miller, I don't know who Jerome Miller is. He was from Salisbury State College. We could not find a hard copy. I have photographs of a paper copy of an essay. But it's called The Way of Suffering, if anybody ever wants to find it. The Way of Suffering, Jerome A. Miller. He says this. I'm just going to read you a few excerpts that I just think are so good. That anguish lies within, not without. It wells up in us without words, without hope of solace or remedy, without being able to give us any clear reasons or explanations for itself, as if it were the terrible cry of nothingness itself. We have seen it reflected perhaps once or twice in each other's eyes. It is the most terrible thing in human life to look at, because we know in our heart of hearts it is an echo of what we have heard in ourselves. Everything in us makes us want to squelch that cry or muffle it, and yet none of us can doubt for a moment that we are closest to the heart of the universe when we hear it. 
For as long as that cry lasts and our ears are open to it, we know that we have broken through the artifices and pretensions of our even-keeled lives to something that is not of this world and has to do with our own deaths. This is the most real moment of our lives. A little bit later. So it fails to uncover the truth that our line of reflection has at this point led us to suspect that our deepest wounds are not the problem, but the answer. I was recently at um, Michigan Christian Convention in, uh, uh, where was I at? Uh, Lansing, Michigan? Is that right? Okay, got it right. I was in Michigan a lot. The mitten part. Um, and don't call the wrong part of the mitten the wrong part of the mitten. They don't like that up there. I have some friends in the UP. Anybody know what the UP is? The UP? Anyway, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Forget my geography lesson. But I was, at, I was at the Michigan Christian Convention. I was one of the keynote speakers, and one of, the other one, his name was Shane Wood, and he was sharing, and at one point he was telling this story about part of his role as a father, as a dad of these, of these young children, is that things will happen. They, they'll fall out of a tree, they wreck their bike, and they come in, right? And they've got that knee that's scraped up, or an elbow, and they've got their hands clamped over the wound, right? And you can see the blood coming through the fingers, and, and he says, one of my jobs in that moment is I have to convince them that they have to take their hand off the wound in order to assess what's going on, to assess how bad it is, and they don't want to. They don't want to let their hand off, they don't want to look at it, they don't want to, and, and, and he said, and the bad news is, yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, we're going to have to put hydrogen peroxide in it. Yes, we're going to have to clean it. Yes, we're going to have to dress it. Yes, we're, but healing cannot begin until you take your hand off the wound. And yes, there will be a scar. Yes, there will be a limp. Yes, there will be this thing that, and, and he, he made this really interesting aside. He said, isn't it interesting that the resurrected Christ still has scars? That the resurrected Christ still has wounds because, again, God doesn't waste the suffering. God redeems it and restores it and then uses it to further, to bring things to glory. So those scars are like beautiful redemption marks to tell the story of who God is and what he does in the world. Healing doesn't mean making it going, go away. Healing means healing. And you get to bring that whole process with you. But you have to take your hand. And he says in church, what we love to do is we all walk around with our hands covering the wounds. All these spiritual wounds. And we all run around church with our Jesus begging us, if, if you're ever going to find healing, you have got to take your hand off the wound. So I'm going, to read, I'm going to start this quote over again. So it fails to uncover the truth that, we have led, that we've been led to suspect that our deepest wounds are not the problem, but the answer. They can teach us things not to be learned through any easier pedagogy, and that the key to wisdom is not at all to recover from them, but to let them speak, even if at first they do so in the inarticulate tongue of anguish. Our wounds are not the problem, but the answer. They can teach us things not to be learned through any easier pedagogy, and the key to wisdom is not at all to recover from them, but to let them speak, even if at first they do so in the inarticulate tongue of anguish. A little bit later. It is our deepest loves that are shattered. It is the things that we love most of all that are taken away from us. And the deeper our belief in God before this happens, the more shattered that belief is after it happens. The God we would like to have, 
The God that would prevent our undergoing the deepest anguishes does not exist. Two more. But dying, as we have seen, can begin to happen at any time. On an evening walk down a tree-lined street, at the first intimation of losing what one loves more than everything, whenever one begins to feel something hemorrhage in one's heart of hearts, none of us suspect that when we tourniquet that hemorrhage, that we are closing ourselves off to God. But the reality of God can only be realized by leaving this world whose existence we take for granted and experiencing the very nothingness we are. Only someone who has lost what meant the most to him, everything in the universe, realizes that this nothingness is the open wound in his own being. Only someone who leaves that wound open, instead of covering it up, is pierced by it deeply enough to become one with the heart of the universe. And then the last quote, and this is how, it, this is how, the, this is how the chapter ends, the essay ends. However, however well we hide it from ourselves, I think we all have in our heart of hearts an inkling of this humility, an intimation of this cry of anguish and praise. We are afraid of how naked it would make us if we allowed ourselves to reveal it. It is the part of us that is capable of embracing lepers. I'll come back to that. I have suggested that such humility is the deepest part of ourselves, the part that harbors the deepest truths. But it is only our griefs, our wounds, that can bring us to listen to them. A saying attributed to the poet Claudel captures this paradox. God writes straight with crooked lines. The most crooked path conceivable is the one that leads us up to God by inviting us to follow the intimations that lead us straight down into our own nothingness. This is the last place we would ever have thought to look for him, but it is there and nowhere in our ordinary world that we will know in our heart of hearts we have found our way home. I have suggested that such humility is the deepest part of ourselves, that it is the part of us that is capable of embracing lepers. So apparently, in the mind of Jerome Miller, and I like it, there is this fine line between the thing that causes us shame and causes us to avert our eyes and the very thing that drives us to embrace people in their deepest suffering. That if we have become intimately aware of our own wounds and our own suffering, it's the very part of us that can embrace anybody else in their suffering as well. And so I have our passages for this morning. I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians. We were in 2 Corinthians last week too, but I'm going to jump about a chapter and a half ahead to Paul's comments on, a, on the ministry of reconciliation. Chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. So Paul says, Man, it's tough to live in this world. And Paul didn't even have Instagram. It's tough to live in a world where everything looks right and everything is staged correctly and nobody wants to talk about suffering and everything wants to be resolved. It is difficult to look around in the world and see people that have it all put together. Jeremiah 17 would, be, would call it the man who trusts in the flesh. People that have got it all figured out on the surface, on the flesh level, on the outside 
But Paul says, but, but we're well known to God and hopefully we're well known to you because in our suffering, hopefully you have a way to process what you see in the world and show the world a better way because that's all false and we know it. We know the false facade, we know that the Instagram reality is not what redeems the world. It never has and it never will. And that doesn't mean, you know, you know, poop on Instagram. It just means put it in its proper place. Do not let yourselves think that that is the way the world operates. Paul says, remember the work of the gospel. There are deeper truths. And that reality that you see all around you in the Greco-Roman world, that's all shallow, glossy facade. It cracks at the slightest we have something that hurts, but it is so much deeper, so much more true. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might, no longer, might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, everything has passed away, see, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So going back to Hebrews, it's Jesus that enters into this process and shows us how to bring things to glory. And then God turns around and says, I'm inviting you into the same, step into the same role that Jesus played for you. I want you to play that same role for others. So this isn't just about me and God and my suffering and Jesus as my good and faithful high priest. It's also the fact to think about Peter that you have also been called a kingdom of priests. So if you have experienced this redemption in Jesus, there's this invitation to step into that same role and help other people in the same way that Jesus helped you help other people experience the same thing. We've been invited into the ministry of reconciliation. It's not that Jesus dies on the cross so that I don't have to. It's that Jesus dies on the cross to show me how to. And that's a radically different thing. So much of Christianity will say, well, Jesus did all this stuff so I don't have to. No. Jesus did all this stuff to show us how to. to How to do it well and how to do it appropriately and correctly. Remember, Jesus invited us to the cross more than once. He didn't say, I go there so that you didn't have to. So we are ambassadors uh, for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entrust you, we entreat you, excuse me, we entreat you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to him, and on a day of salvation, I have helped you. Quotes Isaiah 49. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. Now, Paul here in 2 Corinthians quotes an Old Testament passage. If you've learned anything from me being here in the last two years, what should we probably do? We should probably go back to that Old Testament passage he just quoted, because he probably quoted it for a reason. He didn't just like find some weird, because when you read it, you're like, like, couldn't you have found a better passage than that, Paul? 
something a little bit more poetic, something that like gets to the point a little bit better? No, because he's a Jewish rabbi, and he's practicing an illusion called a remez or a kesher. He's taking you back to the passage because there's something there that actually expands. It blows up what he's talking about. It, it, he, it, it floods the story with color. So let's go back to Isaiah 49. It'll even be on the screen this time for you. I gave Jeffrey lots of work this week. 49, this is the part he quotes. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. On a day of salvation I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. So Paul quotes a part of Isaiah where Isaiah is saying, I have given you this role to go pronounce freedom and rescue and redemption to other people. And Paul doesn't quote that part. He quotes the part right before it so that everybody that knows it and has it memorized or at least has a Bible, on, Bible app on their smartphone can go back and go, ah, that's smart. But did you know there's even more context to this passage? I'm going to take you back to the beginning of Isaiah 49 because it's even better than what I just read you. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord has called... So who is he... Pay attention, all of you outsiders, not God's people. Listen to me, is what Isaiah says. The Lord called me when I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made, me, he made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away and said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Isaiah says, Listen, every, all you outsiders. I've got to tell you my story. God chose me and all of God's people, Israel, to be his servant, to be his tool, to be his partner, to be his conduit. But you know what we've experienced? Suffering, pain, frustration. Think about the time when Isaiah's writing, exile. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, Jacob and prepare and restore, excuse me, the survivors of Israel? I will give you as a light to the nations, and my salvation may be to the ends of the earth. Isaiah says, listen, all you outsiders, God raised me and prepared me and all of God's people to be a servant, but we have experienced suffering. But this is what God says. Yes, you have experienced suffering. Do you think this is a small thing? Is it too light of a thing, too small of a thing, that you might be invited to be a part of something bigger on a cosmological level than you could ever even realize and imagine? That I would use you as a people to be a light to Gentiles. That you would show all the outsiders what I'm like and what suffering can do in a redemptive way. How I can use it. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations. So the world looks and, and averts their gaze. The world looks and like looks away. The world has all that kind of like shameful, I don't want to look at the suffering, I don't want to, but here's what God says. The slave of rulers, kings shall see and stand up. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. 
because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And then, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, on a day of salvation I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and those who are in darkness, show yourself. Isaiah says God sees the suffering and says, I'm going to use it. God sees the suffering, and the world sees the suffering, and the world goes, ugh. And God sees the suffering and says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of deliverance. God sees the pain and the suffering, and he is not ashamed of it, and he will not waste it. And he invites us, calls us to be partners. And he didn't just do, and the beauty of the book of Hebrews, written long after the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah, if you're reading Isaiah, you're like, oh, okay, I get that, that's nice, but that sounds pretty good from the throne room of God. But the writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus dived right in and joined us. God dove right in and joined us in our suffering, walked the path, showed us how to suffer well, and said, this is how we're bringing many children to glory. Not that he orchestrated the pain and the suffering and the brokenness, only that God says, I'll see your brokenness and I will raise you resurrection. And that is a pretty great Eastertide reflection. Let me pray. God, if there's anybody that we could entrust our pain, the injustice we've endured, the abuse we've experienced, it would be to you appropriately understood. God, I I, I even hesitate to say that because we have so distorted our understanding of you and who you are in so many intellectual ways we've made you a angry God, distant holiness, rather than knowing you fundamentally as a loving, compassionate Father who says, I need you to take your hand off the wound because we're going to have to address it. God, if we understand you and see you as appropriately as we can on this side of eternity, you would be the one person that we could entrust all that stuff to. And we would just be so thankful that you don't waste it. You don't waste the pain and the suffering. You waste nothing. You redeem it. You use it. You build something beautiful out of it. And you bring many sons and daughters to glory through it. So God, we... We'll, we'll do our best. And every one of us in this room will be in different places in that process. We'll do our best to give you our, to take our hand off the wound, to trust you with the process of healing. We'll, we'll do our best to do that, each in our own time, each in our own way, through the help of each other. We're going to try to become people that experience your healing. God, I pray you will not let us stop there. I pray we will also sign up for the partnership that comes after that to help others as well. May we not just be consumers of redemption, may we also be partners in in redemption. May we not just be people that benefit from the work of the cross, may we be people that take up our own and follow you there as well. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.